really making headway in the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to go all the way to chapter 16 tonight. There's 22 chapters, so we're getting down to the final quarter. But boys, as they would say in East Texas, this is strong as bear's breath tonight. <laughs> Amen? And so let's pray over it. And I'm so glad to see all of you here on a Wednesday night. Gas prices being what they are and it being so hot out. And I know you've had a long day. Everybody that's had a long day already, raise your hand. Everybody, that, Anybody that hasn't had a long day, raise your hand. I want you to come pray for me and, and all the rest of them. All right. So let's pray over the book of Revelation. And let's see what's going to happen in this world in the days to come. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And we pray your blessing on it. Lord, we know we're coming to the sacred text. This is the word of God. God breathed. Given to us by heaven. The only book on earth that's not from the earth. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name you'll open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to understand it. And may you use it, Lord, to put a fire under us to go out and share Jesus while we still can. And church, can we pray for those people in Highland Park, Illinois, and all of the loved ones that are left once again family members that aren't ever going to see those family members again. Six killed, over 30 wounded, <sighs> Satan on the loose. And this is why we preach the gospel, because let everybody look at me just for a second. Do you think any of those people, those six, when they got up to go to a simple parade, thought they'd never go home? That's why I'm saying most important question we can ever answer is, am I ready? Am I ready? Amen? So let's pray for those people. Father, we just give to you those precious people. First of all, Lord, the over 30 that are wounded sitting in a hospital. Some critically, but all of them traumatized. We pray for the peace of God, the peace of your spirit, the presence of your spirit to be with them. And Lord, that you would use this time, if they don't know you, to move them, to call out on you, to speak to them, to get right with you. Let this be a wake-up call. Let it be a warning that they need to be right with God. We pray for those whose loved ones were taken away that day. Moms and dads and spouses sisters, brothers. We don't know all, Lord, but we know you know. Comfort them. Strengthen them. Lord, go to them with your spirit. And Lord, give them peace in the midst of chaos. And we thank you for binding up their broken hearts. And thank you that as we pray together, you hear this prayer because we agree together as touching this one thing. And Lord, send a revival to the United States of America. Send an awakening to the United States of America. Send deep conviction to the United States of America. And save us before we go off the cliff, Lord. Irreparably. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I believe God heard that prayer. Amen. Now tell the person on the other side of you, Jesus is coming soon. Because that's what book of Revelation is about. It's, it's about what precedes and leads up to the return of Christ. That's the book of Revelation. And so I'll tell you what, it is definitely the darkest before the dawn. And I look around us right now and I think, could it get much darker? And then it gets a little bit darker. But let me tell you something. I told my staff this Tuesday and I'll tell you. Uh, the most important thing we can all do is every day get with God. Every day, go into prayer, open up that Bible, read the word of God. Because I'm going to tell you, Christians who are not in a daily devotional ain't going to make it. Can I say that? They're not going to make it. I'm just being honest. You say, well, make what? I don't think you're going to survive spiritually. 
Uh, you'll, you'll croak on the inside. You know, you'll choke. You'll faint on the inside. We need that daily manna. And God is very faithful to speak to us through his word. So let me just encourage you. Go to the word of God every day and say, God, open thou mine eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law, out of your word. And he'll speak to you and he'll keep your inner man strong because those with strong inner men, all right, the innermost, innermost part of you, your spirit man, uh, they're not only going to survive, they're going to thrive. I believe that, all right? But we know when to eat when we feel hungry. We know when to fill up the gas tank when it's getting down towards E, but we don't know how to take care of our souls. We've got to practice soul care. Amen? Now, that's free. That has nothing to do with Revelation. Let's look at it. Last time we looked in chapter 13 at the rise of Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet, who I said might be a pope. I'm not saying it is, but I think that's a good candidate. And the mark of the beast. So you have the Antichrist, the false prophet, who is the second beast, and the mark of the beast. And how the mark of the beast is imposed upon the entire world before the return of Christ. Now chapter 14 begins with John again taken up into heaven. Man, he's going back and forth from earth to heaven to earth to heaven. It's enough to make you dizzy just reading it, right? Where once again, he sees the 144,000 that we first met in chapter 7. The 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe, Jewish Billy Grahams, who are going to be covering the earth with the gospel before Christ comes back. And notice it says they have the name of the Father on their foreheads. Let's read it. Revelations 14, verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So here they've got a mark too, but it's not the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the Savior. Amen? As far as I can tell in the book of Revelation, you're marked in one of two ways. You're the Lord's and you're marked by it, or you're the devil's and you're marked by it. All right? This is the seal mentioned in Revelation 7, verse 3. Now, they are seen in heaven, for they likely die a martyr's death when Satan, the dragon, makes war with the remnant. All right? Then John witnesses an explosion of worship. Let me tell you something. You better like worship now, because you're going to be doing a whole lot of it in heaven. A lot of what goes on in heaven is just worship. And you say, well, that's going to be boring. Oh, no, 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 no. Get ready for the trip of your life because you're going to be worshiping God. I mean, in ways, in such bliss and such glory and such joy. All right. Verse two, and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. And it was like the sound of many harpists playing together. That's the sound of the worshipers. It sounds like thunder. It sounds like ocean waves. And these majestic sounds, it's a heavenly choir. It's a heavenly choir. And it's the song of those who have been redeemed from the great tribulation. They are the fruit of the preaching of the 144,000 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And John seems to be writing ecstatically. Look what he says. This great choir, I'm quoting him now. This great choir sang a wonderful, a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It's going to be a new song. Their personal walk of purity is particularly striking to the aged apostle. John notes how pure they are. Verse 4, they have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the lamb wherever he goes. That just hit me. I want you to say with me, I want to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you feel that way? I mean... Wherever he goes, that's where I want to go. Whatever he does, that's what I want to do. 
Wherever he is, that's where I want to be found. Right there. Come on, everybody. So that, that's the 144,000. Wherever the lamb goes, they go. They've been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the lamb. They've told no lies. And they are without blame. Now, this doesn't mean because it says they were pure like virgins, they had never married. But what it's saying is they are pure and holy in their thoughts. They're pure and holy through the shed blood of Christ and in their spiritual character. They're undefiled by immorality. That's what it's telling us. Now, John next observes six angels. I love all the angels in the book of Revelation. There's angels everywhere. I love it, right? So he sees six angels next. And all of them have unique messages of warning and judgment. So these six angels are to be noted. If you've got a pen and you've got your Bible with you or a way to mark what's in your iPhone or on your iPad, do it because these six angels are crucial. Every one of them has a unique message of warning and judgment to the world that is under such judgment right now. Let's begin by looking at the first three angels and their message. Here's the first angel. This angel's message is a gospel message. The eternal good news, verse 6. I saw another angel flying through the sky. When is this happening? It's happening in the second half of the tribulation when all hell is breaking loose. When demons are all over the world. When people are getting the mark of the beast. Look what God, the God of mercy does. He sends an angel through the whole world to preach. Look what it says. I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. And what is his message? Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So he's carrying good news and a warning. It's not too late to get saved, and it's not too late to look up and worship the true God. And that's happening. Notice it says he goes through the whole earth. There's not a tribe or a nation or a people that he does not reach. That's the mercy of God. Right in the middle of the most horrific time earth has ever seen, the mercy of God yet reaches out to the lost. That's the first angel. He's preaching. Second angel. This angel carries a message for Babylon. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting right behind the preaching angel. Here comes another one. Babylon has fallen. That great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. So you got 144,000 who are not involved in any kind of immorality, and the rest of the world is drunk with passionate immorality. Now, what's Babylon here? Babylon represents the city, the system, and the regime of the final times. I personally believe that Babylon here represents the Antichrist uh, system that he has in place. It's likely both a physical place and a spiritual condition of rebellion against God. Babylon first appears in the Bible in Genesis 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? Where we find Nimrod leading the charge and building the Tower of Babel. The Hebrew name for Babel is Babylon. It's simple to remember. They babble on. Right? Because nobody understood each other. So it's, blah, 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 blah. it's gibberish, Babylon. Good way to remember it. God thwarted the effort and confused the people's languages. Why did God do that? Because the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 represented uh, pride and rebellion against the clear command of God. God had told Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the what? In other words, go everywhere. Go in every direction and fill the earth. I want the whole earth populated. That was the command of God. He had wanted Noah's descendants to repopulate the entire planet. But by centralizing the population in, at one tower, in one place, 
They were in direct rebellion to the command of God. And God said, no way. If you won't obey me, I'm going to scatter you and you can't understand each other. But either way, my will is going to be done. Amen. So all of a sudden, nobody could understand. <laughs> they were saying, hand me the hammer and then hand me the And they could no longer build. Well, what'd you say? What'd you say? And everybody started looking for somebody that could understand their language. And by force, they were scattered because they wouldn't do it voluntarily. <laughs> little message there. When God tells you to do something, do it before he has to make you do it. I'd rather just do it instead of going to the woodshed. Amen? <laughs> now, as for the place, ancient Babylon was located where present-day southern Iraq now is. This is very important. Matter of fact, many Bible expositors and commentators believe that the Garden of Eden was originally located somewhere near Iraq, that landmass, that that's where the Garden of Eden used to be when God made it all. Uh, would that not explain why Satan has so attacked it and sought to pervert it, Iraq, Iran? And it's been such a place of violence and bloodshed and confusion. Now, it could be that the Babylon that John sees is that revived land with its capital of Baghdad. We don't know for sure. I'm going to get into that a little bit more in the next couple of chapters. But it could be it's going to be a physical place. Uh, Baghdad, Iraq is going to become central, a central world player again. It could be. We're going to look at it. So that's the second angel. Here comes the third angel. This angel's message is a dire warning. Once again, God sternly advises against refusing the mark of the beast. To receive it is to perish eternally. I want you to listen to verse 9. Then a third angel followed them. So these angels are going out in a, in a, in a, a line. First angel, second angel, third angel. They're following along behind each other. And this one is warning. Then a third angel followed the first two, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured forth full strength into God's cup of wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur. Now, this is not Jeff. I'm not making this up. I'm reading book of Revelation. I know this is hard. It's hard for me. But this is what it says. It wants to hear it, really hear it. This is why we preach the gospel. They will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, capital L. The smoke of their torment will rise, listen, forever and ever. Greek, it reads this way in the original Greek. Ionis, Ionon. Ionis, Ionon. It means ages of ages, ever and forever, an unbroken age, eternity. When the Greeks wanted to express eternity, they said Ionis, Ionon. Ages upon ages without end. I only wanted to accentuate that, bring that out, because we're in a day of incredible deception. It's everywhere. Social media is a crazy house. So much false stuff is on that. Listen, be careful where you go on social media. There's false prophets, false teachers, false Christ, it's infested. But I bring this out because there's a teaching out there. What happens when somebody lost dies? Do they really go to an eternal hell? There's a lot of people out there. Some of them are called universalists. Universalists teach that no one will perish forever, that the blood of Christ covered everybody, and that includes Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, everybody. They'll say there's no such thing as eternal hell. Then there are those who say, 
yeah, you'll go to a place of torment, but you don't stay forever. You eventually get out. That's called purgatory. Taught by the Catholics. You pay your way out, or you wait your way out, or um, some of your loved ones still on earth can pay your way out with indulgences. There's all kinds of teaching out there. To take away the, the stern warning of God that to reject Christ is to step into a Christless Ionus Ionone. So we want to be sure we stay faithful to the word here. This is what it says. I didn't say it. It, says, it goes on to say, they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue. And they accepted the mark of his name. May we preach the gospel with all of our heart. And get out there and reach as many as possible. Because there's only one escape route. And that's the blood of Christ. That's the only escape route. And it's a beautiful escape route. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me. While the coming is good. Amen? Amen. The Holy Spirit thankfully delivers a word of encouragement to those who will belong to the Lord in the great tribulation. Verse 12, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently. Now I'm reading John. This means when you're in tribulation, you must bear it patiently. Persecution, bear it patiently. Obeying his commands and maintaining your faith in Jesus. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, when I go, may I go in you. Amen. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work. We were going to rest one day, everybody, for their good deeds follow them. No, good don't save you, but they testify to the fact that you have been saved. And if you are involved in good works, they're going to follow you into heaven where there's going to be rewards given. Amen and amen and a double amen. Come on, everybody. Yes. Now next, John's about to witness a great reaping of souls, both to eternal life and to eternal damnation. You know where we're going now? Second chances are running out. Watch this. The last three angels and the seven bowls. In the closing verses of chapter 14, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is seen seated on a cloud. Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, this, this symbolism matters. We need to pay attention to it. So he's got a gold crown on his head that speaks of authority. And he's got a sickle in his hand. We already know who it is. It's Christ. All right? So what does the sickle represent? It's, it, it represents not a good harvest, but one of judgment. Jesus is about to judge. What is about to take place with the appearance of the fourth angel is the answer of the prayers of the martyr's saints who have asked for vengeance on their persecutors. Now, those that persecuted the saints of God, killed them, murdered them, are about to be judged. It's like I preach Sunday. One thing that will measure the fate of a nation is how it treats the godly. I'm telling you. Jesus said, inasmuch you've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it to me. For bad or for good. Now, those that killed God's people are about to get it. And I hate it. I don't want to see anybody go through this, but let's read it. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Jesus, swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. 
So the one sitting on the cloud, Jesus swung the sickle over the earth and the entire earth was harvested. Now, this is the fulfillment of Matthew 13, verse 40, where Jesus said, let me quote Jesus. Are you ready? Listen, here he goes. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Verse 42, Matthew 13. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace. Where will they go? A fiery furnace. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oof. Then the righteous, conversely, will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear better listen and understand. He's telling us, you only go one of two places. You don't come back as anything. There's no reincarnation. You have one shot in this life. And you're going to go to one of two places. There are only two roads. Wide road, narrow road. Two ways, the Savior or the devil. And when Jesus swings that sickle, he's going to reap the harvest of both. It's judgment time or it's enter into the joy of your Lord time. But those are the only two. It's, it's Messiah doing the reaping. He's the one sitting on the cloud. He's no longer the little lamb of God that allowed people to abuse him. Oh, no, no. He's the lion of Judah now. He's the judge of the, the, the earth. Now next, here comes the fifth angel. He appears from the heavenly temple, also ready to reap a harvest. Verse 17, after that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sickle. So here comes another harvest. So on the heels of the fifth angel's appearance, so, so we got the fifth one. Now, track with me. We, we've seen the fifth one. He's got a sickle, and right behind him comes a sixth one. So they're kind of coming out as a duo. The sixth angel, verse 18. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the fifth angel with the sharp sickle, swing that sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. The fire over which the sixth angel has power is the fiery wrath of the end times. The sixth angel with power to destroy with fire tells the fifth angel to thrust in the sharp sickle. Now, what are the vines of the earth that they're reaping? It's the false vine. Jesus said in John 15, he was the true vine by which we are saved. But no doubt the vine the angel is addressing here is the false vine of the Antichrist. Those who have followed him are about to be judged. It's the same end time harvest where second chances are gone. Now it's too late. You know, it's so easy to get swayed and lullabied by a predictable life and schedule. And, you know, it's easy. I think it's, I was thinking about judgment lately. Because, you know, you do away with judgment in the Bible, you're going you're to have a little skinny Bible left if you pull out everything about judgment in it. It's just a little skinny Bible left. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for grace. But judgment's a part of the history of man. And I was thinking about it, how, how judgment snuck up on those of Noah's day. It says... Marrying, giving in marriage, buying, selling, doing business, making business deals, having kids, having picnics. What made me think about this was the 4th of July. Because I went out my backyard and I could see way off in the distance some fireworks. I didn't want to fight the traffic this year. But I was watching in the distance and I'm looking at America, celebrating. Woohoo. You know, a lot of them don't even know what they're celebrating, have no idea don't care. They just want to get drunk or high or whatever. 
It's just a day off work. But I was thinking, that was the attitude of those in Noah's day. Woohoo! Isn't life great? Kids, grandkids, good business, money. And Jesus said they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody got up, made their daily coffee, said hello to the kids, sent them off to school, um, gave the dog a little pat on the head on the way out, headed off to work. Well, actually, the sun was just rising, and most of them were just waking up. And whoosh, And there was all kinds of warning signs. If you had been alert, do you remember when Sodom was taken over by foreign kings and Abraham went and interceded and defeated them and brought all the Sodomites back home and said hello to the king and the king offered him money? And he said, I don't want your money. And there was the, was the greatest man of God on the planet talking to them influencing them, taking a stand for God. I don't want your money. That should have spoken volumes to the king of Sodom. I don't want your stuff. I'm not about that. I want the smile of God because he said, lest you say I made Abraham rich because the one who blesses me is God. Right? Now, track with me. So they had this incredible witness standing right in front of them and didn't sway them. Noah, they had Noah preaching for 120 years and it didn't move them. So I was thinking of judgment, how it creeps up. But when it comes, my friend, it comes. And here it is coming. When the fifth angel thrust in his sickle, the Lord Jesus will tread the winepress of divine wrath. The prophet Joel predicted this as well. Joel 3, verse 12, let all the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Swing the sickle, familiar language there. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread the grapes, for the wine press is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. The Valley of Decision Joel mentions is none other than the Valley of Armageddon, where the mother of all wars is going to take place. Keep in mind that this picture of treading the grapes, when he says tread the grapes, it's an Old Testament symbolism. Grapes in the wine press were crushed by the feet of the workers. So it's telling us God will tread down and crush his enemies like grapes. John is next giving a brief preview of the War of Armageddon. And this is, this is hard to read. That we will look at much more closely in chapter 19. But we got a little, just a little taste of the War of Armageddon here. Verse 19, Revelation 14. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth. Here we go. Loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath for them to be trampled. Verse 20, the grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream, catch this, about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Can, can you know how far 180 miles is? How far is Austin from here? Three hours? So from here to Austin, blood as high as a horse's bridle. <laughs> it's going to be the war of all wars, war of Armageddon. I stood there at the Valley of Megiddo when I went to Israel. I stood at the Valley of Megiddo. You know, Napoleon stood at the Valley of Megiddo. It's this lush plain right now. It's, it's this beautiful valley filled with all kinds of beautiful foliage and fruit, and it looks incredible. But Napoleon stood there, 
And he said, the armies of the world could fight here, not knowing he was prophesying. Because they will. So horrific will the carnage be, the blood will flow like a river. Like a river. How high is a horse's bridle? Four and a half feet or so? For almost 200 miles. Now, it, I, I'll give you this. It could be intentional exaggeration to relay the horrific amount of bloodshed during this terrible war. However, nothing tells us it's symbolism. It's, it's literal because it gives us measurements. As we begin chapter 15, we see that John is once again transported from this horrific scene, no kidding, to one of splendor. I think God was constantly giving him a break from these incredible things he's seeing. It's like, Lord, can I see something uplifting? So God says, all right, all right, let's go back up to heaven. And he's transported into heaven and he sees splendor and beauty. He witnesses a great sign and we're coming to the close for tonight because I know I've given you a whole lot. But he witnesses a great sign and a beautiful sea of glass. Revelations 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels, here's more angels, were holding the last seven plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. So now we've come to the final seven judgments of God. Fourteen have fallen, there's seven to go to make 21 in all. The word wrath, John uses here, is the Greek word thumos, and it means hot fury. That's what it means. The apostle begins with a stunning scene. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. Picture it. We're out there. Let's say there's no waves in the ocean. It's just placid like a pond that doesn't have a ripple. And there's fire coming up out of it. But it looks gorgeous. A glass sea with fire. What does that mean in Bible symbolism? Glass represented permanence to the ancients. So glass, eternal. Fire is representative of something purifying. So in this case, it's righteous judgment. So the glass-like sea of fire represents purifying judgment with eternity stretching beyond. So here comes judgment, and past the judgment, a new world is coming. John continues, and on it, on the glass-like sea, stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the mark of the beast, the number representing his name. So standing on this sea are all these people, tribulation saints, martyred, now they're in eternity, and they refuse to worship uh, the devil or the Antichrist. They refuse the mark, and John records something very moving in verse 2, the second half of the verse. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Moses and the Lamb both represent deliverance and salvation, and they sang. Can we read this together, everybody? There it is up there. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Verse 4, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Do you realize just now you quoted what you're going to be singing one day? Amen. Amen. I'm going to stop there. I don't know about you, but I'm about to OD. <laughs> That's enough for one night. Next time we'll deal with the seven bowls and the seven plagues. How many of you can say, wow, that's heavy stuff, Pastor Jeff? All right. You know what? It's only eight. I'm going to take two questions. And so if you have a question, ask it now or forever hold your peace. All right. So if you have two questions, and I never know what's coming, so Lord, be with me by the Holy Spirit, please, amen. So let me get two questions, all right? One back here, 
and then one over here. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good word. Um, Speak up, please, and then you right. turn her up. There we go. Okay. Uh, they talk about the 12 tribes, mm -hmm. but 10 of them were gone. How do we get them back? How, does, how do they come back? Well, they're gone in the sense they've, they've never regathered as uh, northern Israel. Because remember now, Solomon, I, I can't believe old Solomon. He blows me away because here's the wisest man on earth. But he gets hooked up with these bad women. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. Now, don't look at the woman next to you. Look up at me. Huh? I'm just saying, what it shows is the power of relationships. And you better hang around with good people. Because Solomon, the wisest man on earth, it says his wives turned his heart from God. All right? So when he died, Ecclesiastes tells us how he died. Disillusion, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything is evil under the sun. He's lost his perspective of God. He's been carried away. He literally built on the high places altars to offer children alive, burned alive, to Chemosh and Asherah and other false deities. Solomon, are you kidding me? Yeah. Now, the divided king with a divided heart left a divided nation. Okay? You reap what you sow. And so, not without going through the whole thing of what all went down that divided them, but ten tribes went off under uh, one man, one king, Jeroboam, and those ten tribes of Israel never had a righteous king. Not one time. Not one of all the kings that rose up in northern Israel, not one was righteous. Not one. Judah, the southern kingdom, went with Rehoboam, Solomon's boy. All right? And so on and on they went. Now, eventually, the Assyrians were allowed by God and actually brought by God to take the ten tribes and conquered them. And they spread throughout the world and never regathered. Ten of the twelve. Two of the other, Judah and Benjamin, made up the southern tribes. And we know what happened to them. They were taken to Babylon, but they came back. Okay? Now, just because the ten never regathered doesn't mean they weren't on earth. And God is going back, and God who can resurrect anything he wants will resurrect uh, all twelve, will will find them, because he knows where the, the ten are. There's all kinds of theories out there about where they are, but they've never regathered. So um, anyway, he'll for, because God can do it, he will resurrect those ten and he'll call 12,000 out of each one, 12 times 12, 144, and they will go and preach the gospel of the world. I don't know if that answers it for you, but they're out there and God knows where they are. Alright? Okay. Way over here. We like working, Brendan. Amen. I'm loud enough, I can probably hear me anyhow. <laughs> My understanding on the rapture, mm -hmm. the dead in Christ and then the living in Christ will be called up in the air. Yes. In the clouds and meet Jesus. Yes. And everyone else remaining will go through the tribulation. Yes. My question's always been, and always heard it, that to be... Absent in body is to be present in God. Right. And so my, my question is, the people since Christ that are dead now, mm -hmm. you know, are they, and I've heard this about the rest, about the deep sleep, or then a lot of people say, well, you know, the dead have gone and they're in God's mm -hmm. presence right now looking right. down at us. So does anybody in here have a glove? I just need a glove. Anybody have a glove? Michael Jackson in the house? Uh, yeah. Does anybody have a glove? No glove? Nobody in here has a glove? Well, of course, in the middle of the summer, I get it. Um, let's pretend I have a glove, okay? And I put it on my left hand here. So here's a glove. All right. The glove itself represents the body. 
The hand represents the soul. Okay, let's do this one. I'm right-handed, this is easier. Um, so why does the glove move? Because the hand's in it, the hand animates it. It does this because the hand is telling it to. The glove is dead without the hand. Are you with me? The glove is dead without the hand. Uh, for the glove to move, it needs to have a hand in it. Okay, your body is the glove. The hand is your soul. As long as your soul is in the glove, the body, it's animated. The only reason I can talk to you and look at you right now is because my soul is in my body. When you die, the glove, you've looked at a lost loved one, many of you, and how, how often do you hear at a funeral? It's not them. I see them. It's their body, their face, but it's not them. They're not there. You're right, because the soul is gone. Now watch this. When, so when a believer dies, the glove goes into the ground. The soul goes up to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Okay? So the glove goes into the ground. Now, it may be 2,000 years. What is Paul's body right now? It's nothing but dust. Simon Peter's, nothing but dust. Okay? Does God have a problem with that? No. God talks to the dust and says, come back together. Even if it's blown all over the world, even if you took a loved one to the ocean and dropped their ashes into the ocean, is that a problem with God? No. Now, so... The glove is in the ground. The soul is in heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So when you die, your soul goes, hallelujah, here I come. All right? Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But his body wasn't. He was. Jesus said, you're going to be with me in paradise. But Jesus' body was in the tomb. How could he have been with him in paradise the same day? Because his spirit went into the presence of the Father. <clears throat> when the rapture happens, God calls the bodies out of the grave. Come up here. Trumpet will blow. All those ashes, whatever state it's in, will come together, be instantly transformed. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Be instantly transformed. And as you go up, your soul is rejoined to the glorified body. Your soul is rejoined to the glorified body. You say, well, how do you know that? That's what happened with Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he's the first fruits of resurrection. So, what happened with Jesus? His body went in the tomb. His soul went up to the presence of the Father. It also went down to Hades and preached to the captives in Hades. But it wasn't in his body. No, when he looked at his body, when they took him down off the cross, he was as dead as dead can be. His body was. But when he was resurrected, what happened? His soul returned to his body. And he got up. Good morning, sunshine. <laughs> Easter Sunday. He got up. So he's the first fruits. He's the prototype. So that's what will happen with us. You'll be in the grave out you will come. Instantly given a glorified body like Christ, your soul will re-enter. And it will be perfect. No more depression. No more weird thoughts. No more temptation. None of that. Glorified. So does that help? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so what about the Holy Spirit that occupies us now? The Holy Spirit that occupies us now uh, well, he's not in a dead body in the ground. Correct. He, he, the Holy Spirit will be the instrument by which the resurrection of our bodies happens because that's what happened with Christ. The Spirit of God raised the Son of God. So when your body dies, it goes into the ground. Paul said, it's like a seed that is sown and it dies. But what it, com what it comes back as it comes back as something different from what was sown. 
So the Holy Spirit will resurrect it and we will be in a glorified state. And then I would assume it says we will know even as we have been known. So I don't even know that there will be such a thing as spirit filled because we will be perfect and we will be, uh, we will be surrounded by, uh, well, we'll be perfect. So I don't know that there will be such a thing as needing to walk in the spirit. The only reason we need to walk in the spirit is so we won't walk in the flesh. Right. Because we're here now. Yeah. Does that help? Oh, absolutely. You want to preach? You're holding the... the. (laughs) Last week. Go ahead. No. You got another one? Uh, No, that was really, you know, that's always been one of my things. Yeah. You know, just to to clarify that, because, you know, when I witness someone, I want to be able to tell them exactly what it is. You know, and it's just like, for example, a lot of people say... You know, a lot of people say, oh, we're waiting on Jesus' return. Well, to me, we should almost be waiting on the rapture. You know, and then lead into what the rapture is, lead into what tribulation is. Yeah. And then eternal separation. Yeah. And, uh, and one thing I will say, I mean, I've been blessed to be able, you know, to, to go through Revelation on my own and through some other studies. But your method, your knowledge, and your passion for this, it has opened up so much more of so much putting so many things together that never really made sense. And uh, so with deep appreciation, Mindy and I are just so... Well, I'm scoring tonight. I got, I got two people to give a $100 bill to. <laughs> yeah. To be able to Thank have a, an understanding. Thank because you. so many people are afraid of Revelation. You know, it's just like you start reading, you just, you just you know, yeah. just glimpse over it's, it. It's going, heavy stuff. That's the craziest stuff I've ever heard in my life. You know, that's just like, you know, whatever. Yeah. But to be able to explain it to where yeah. you like you're following, like you're really there. And, uh, and you've been able to do that for us. And we appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm sure there's many others in there do. Thank you. All right. So that's great. And let's stand together. I love those questions. Now, you'll notice I haven't, if you were a listener to, to, to Every Man and Answer, I haven't been on it. I took a six-week break because it just became too much. Being on there twice a week, answering Bible questions from around the country, on Wednesday nights, right before I come here. So I took a break, six weeks. And it's a good thing. I needed it. Amen? Amen. But I love these questions. And uh, we're learning. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your good word. Thank you for your good word. You're a good, good God. And thank you, Lord, that a new world is coming. Help us, Lord, to win as many to Christ as in many ways as we can, many places that we can, by every means that we can, in Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed, everybody. Have a good week. We'll see you Sunday.